This is 1A. I'm Nyla Boodoo, in for Jen White. Results from the midterm elections are in. After calling a House race in California for Republicans late Wednesday, the GOP will have control of the House. But Democrats have kept control of the Senate. But how much of the outcome was determined before voters even cast their ballots? Redistricting, the process of drawing new congressional maps that happens every 10 years, shook up races around the country. In reliably blue New York, Republicans managed to flip four congressional districts. I had a good run. And so I'm deeply grateful to the people of the Hudson Valley for giving me their voice and their vote in Washington for 10 years. I'm not going to whine about it. Um, um, I'm going to I'm going to do this the right way. And the right thing to do is to say the other guy won to wish him well and to pledge my support. And that's what I'm doing. That was Democrat Sean Patrick Maloney in his concession speech. He represented New York's 18th congressional district for a decade. The GOP also managed to pick up four congressional seats in Florida under new voting maps drawn by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's own Republican legislature thought DeSantis's maps went too far, but they were used in this election anyway. And in Michigan, we saw the opposite, where independent redistricting reforms enabled a historic Democratic takeover of the state legislature. So how much did redistricting and who draws these voting districts affect the outcome of this year's midterms? We'll get into all of that and more after the break. This conversation is part of 1A's Remaking America project, looking at how democracy is and is not working for everyone. I'm Nyla Boodoo, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the smart wool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. Let's get into it. Joining us from Williamsburg, Massachusetts, is David Daly. He's the author of Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. He's also a senior fellow at Fair Vote. That's a nonpartisan voting reform organization. David, welcome back to 1A. Thanks again for having me. Also with us from Gainesville is University of Florida political science professor Sharon Austin. She testified against Florida's congressional maps drawn by Governor DeSantis in a lawsuit claiming they were racial gerrymanders. Professor Austin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And joining us from Atlanta is Maya King. She's a politics reporter who covers the South for The New York Times. Maya, welcome to 1A. Hi, glad to be here. David, broadly, how much did redistricting affect the outcome of midterm of the midterms across the country? Absolutely. I think in any close election that lots of things can be determinative, but redistricting and gerrymandering, undeniably one of the most important factors in handing control of the U.S. House to the Republican Party. When you do the math, when you look at the seats that both parties gerrymander for their own benefit, Republicans netted somewhere between seven and 10 seats nationwide, I would say, through redistricting. That will almost unquestionably be a larger number than their majority in the House. How this happened looks a little bit different in every state. 
Um, some of these gains were the result of the U.S. Supreme Court and other state courts putting their thumb on the scale. Some are the r- r- result of racial gerrymandering. Others are sort of good old, old-fashioned uh, partisan gerrymanders. Um, but clearly, when you're looking at a House that could have a four-seat Republican majority, the way that lines were drawn determined winners and losers nationwide ahead of time and could well have flipped control of the chamber. Professor Austin, I feel like we're going to hear the terms redistricting and gerrymandering a lot in this hour. Can you define for us the difference between those two terms? Redistricting is uh, when you're at the beginning of every decade, when the population census is taken, uh, districts have to be redrawn uh, based on population shifts. And so that's what redistricting is. But a gerrymander is when there are racial gerrymanders and there are also partisan gerrymanders. A racial gerrymander is when a district is drawn in such a way, usually to put a a, a certain racial or ethnic group at a disadvantage. But in some cases, even it's been said that racial gerrymanders have been drawn in such a way to make it possible for people of color to have a majority minority district, to have the majority population so that they could possibly elect a person from their racial group in office. Uh, A partisan gerrymander, gerrymander takes place. When um, a district is drawn in such a way to give a certain political party a certain advantage. And so that's the difference between the two. Thank you for that, Professor Austin. David, let's look at New York. How much do you think redistricting factored into their midterm results? And would you define what happened in New York as redistricting or gerrymandering? I would say what we saw in New York was a little bit of both. We had gerrymandering, we had redistricting, and we saw the role of uh, of state and federal courts here. Um, I think to tell the story of New York, really what you have to do is go back to the 2011 redistricting cycle in which Democrats felt nationwide that um, they had gotten played and Republicans really won a national advantage. They were determined not to let that happen again and to draw lines in states that they controlled that gave them big advantages. And we saw that this year, Illinois, Maryland, Nevada, New Mexico. Uh, Democrats wanted to uh, try to push the advantage where they controlled the process. So in New York, they really steamrolled uh, state constitutional protections on redistricting, and they came up with a map that would have produced 23 Democratic districts and just three Republican seats. That's a pretty gerrymandered map when you guarantee yourselves 85% of the seats. That map went to a a state court where a Democratic uh, appointed court said, no way, this is unconstitutional. And they took the responsibility of drawing the lines away from the legislature. They handed it to a respected independent special master who came back with a map that looked very different. Uh, It was a much more balanced map. On that map, um, in this election, uh, Democrats won 15 seats. Republicans won 11 seats. So quite a big difference over 23 to 3. But it was a fairly proportional outcome. Republicans won 45% of the statewide vote. They won 42% of the seats. I think really what this shows up, though, is that when you have 
courts in democratic states that enforce rules against partisan gerrymandering. But what we saw elsewhere around the country in Florida, in Ohio, where Supreme Courts either endorsed this behavior or they were defied by politicians, uh, you end up with a national imbalance. Right. And as we know, Florida, as you said, also used a new voting map during the midterms. Those maps were drawn by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Constitutionality of Florida's map is being challenged in state and federal courts because it broke up a black-dominated district in North Florida. Governor DeSantis pushed a map that gave Republicans four additional seats. He drew the map after rejecting a proposed map from Florida's Republican legislature. Professor Austin, can you give us a sense, first of all, of just how this election map in Florida looks different than the previous elections? Yeah, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there were four additional Republican seats in under the new uh, map that was drawn by the governor. Uh, and as a caller mentioned, uh, in a congressional district, it was once Congressional District 5, but now it's Congressional District 2. And in that particular district, um, former Representative Al Lawson, who recently lost when running for re-election, had to run against Neil Dunn, who's a Republican, who um, was was also an incumbent. And their two uh, districts were combined, and they competed against each other. And Al Lawson, who had been a veteran lawmaker, who'd been in Florida politics for many decades, uh, who'd only been uh, in this position in Congress since 2017, uh, was defeated. And I think the saddest thing about this map, it gave an advantage to Republicans, but also there is no uh, Democratic representation in the northern part of the state as a result of this map. If you really, uh, if you were to go online and look at the partisan makeup of the U.S. House of Representatives delegation from Florida, you'll find that there are Democratic representatives in Tampa, in the Orlando area, and also in parts of South Florida, but there is none north of Orlando. And so especially with the former Congressional District 5, which now, which was once a district that included Gaston County, which has the largest African-American population and is the only predominantly black county in the entire state, um, that district um, was combined with the neighboring uh, majority Republican communities. And so now what was once a district with a large African-American population now has a majority white Republican, also, uh, I guess, sizable uh, rural population. And as a result of that, um, that is a district um, where, you know, the legacy of slavery is apparent in Gaston County. Uh, The legacy of sharecropping is apparent there. Um, Former Representative Al Lawson grew up there. He also worked as a sharecropper as a child. And so those are the people who now no longer have the right to elect uh, an African-American representative. And so I guess the point is, if Gaston County, which is the only majority black county in the entire state, if they can't elect a black representative in Congress in the U.S. House, then then who should be able to? And so that shows just the egregiousness of this map that was drawn by the governor. Maya, you also did some reporting in a town called Powder Springs in Georgia. That's a predominantly black town that, because of redistricting, is now being represented by the far-right Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. What did you hear from voters and constituents there about the change? Powder Springs and uh, its neighboring town, Austell, as you point out, are are majority black and and a working class uh, community. About 25,000 people in that area are now going to be represented by Congresswoman Green. And the big concern essentially is whether or not they will have their needs met by by their new congresswoman. This was a story that really um, unpacked some of the 
items and, and responsibilities that Congress people play that isn't always um, isn't always widely talked about. Things from veterans affairs benefits to passport renewals to general communications with constituents um, on issues that matter to them, making sure that they get funding that they need to continue sort of operating as as a community. These were all things that people I spoke to from residents to community leaders to state house representatives felt they may may not actually be able to receive anymore under Congresswoman Green's leadership. This was a district that was once represented by David Scott, a Democrat um, in Congress and a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, he was just moved a little bit further um, into a newly drawn Democratic district. But essentially, yes, it, it has sort of unearthed a lot of the responsibilities that Congress people do and the concerns that Congresswoman Green might not um, carry those through for her new constituents. Professor Austin, you um, were talking about racial gerrymandering in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit more of the history of that North Florida district that was also recently redrawn? Right. That was Congressional District 5. uh, And uh, it now is represented by Neil Dunn, who um, is from Panama City. And it now has, as I mentioned, it includes Gaston County, which is the only predominantly African-American county in the entire state. And that county has now been combined with some of the rural counties uh, surrounding it. And so now you have a situation in which before Congressional District 5 extended from Jacksonville all the way beyond Tallahassee. But now uh, it now includes Tallahassee as well. But Tallahassee is now being combined with areas in the panhandle, which are largely Republican and also largely conservative. And so even if you look at the voting in 2020 uh, in terms of who voted for Biden and who voted for Trump, you find that it now consists largely of the people who voted for Donald Trump, who are totally different from the people who voted for Joe Biden. And so now you're seeing that type of uh, partisan gerrymander that also is a racial gerrymander in the sense that now the votes of African-American voters is now being diluted and they no longer have a right, have uh, an ability to elect an African-American representative. And and another thing I want to point out is Al Lawson, who, as I mentioned, was elected in 2017, was the first African-American representative they had ever had representing Gaston County. And so now as a result of this map, they've lost that. Professor Austin, correct me if I'm wrong here. If I'm remembering my history, because of the way maps were drawn in Florida, was it more than 100 years between Florida's first black representative until the second because of the way maps were drawn? Is that correct? Absolutely. The first uh, African-American in Congress was Josiah T. Walls, and that was during Reconstruction. And they didn't elect another African-American even in the legislature until the late 1960s. And in Congress, they didn't elect another African-American representative until the 1992 election. So it was well over 100 years. David, could you just speak to that in terms of why just I think it's a probably a more fundamental question about why when we're thinking about racial equality, the way that these maps are drawn is important? Absolutely. Um, Really, what the Voting Rights Act tried to do in 1965 was to put an end to this kind of, of packing and cracking and intentional dilution of the votes of racial minorities. And What the U.S. Supreme Court has done over the course of this last decade is walk many of those protections back, if not eviscerate them altogether. And that played a huge role in the kinds of maps that were drawn 
uh, this year. You can uh, go back first to the 2013 case of uh, Shelby County versus Holder, in which the court in a 5-4 decision ruled that uh, things had changed in the South, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, and he eliminated uh, Section 5 preclearance. Uh, they put an end to preclearance in which um, states that had a history of the uh, uh, worst racial discrimination in, in voting practices had to have all of their changes uh, pre-cleared by the, the Department of Justice in Washington. That would have included a, a congressional maps. Uh, and so this was the first redistricting cycle without Section 5 preclearance. And that allowed states like Texas and Alabama and others across the South, Arizona, uh, to enact maps uh, that might not have endured uh, scrutiny by the Biden Justice Department. And then in February of 2021, in a case out of Alabama, um, really a textbook racial gerrymander in which uh, Republican lawmakers there drew, you know, a tentacle-shaped ink ink blot uh, that neatly grabbed uh, as many black voters as it possibly could in Montgomery, a hundred miles north up to Birmingham, over to Selma, really across the black belt of Alabama, uh, packed them into that one district um, and then uh, scattered and diluted the other black voters in Alabama across other seats. So you have a state like Alabama, which is almost 30% black, uh, but they're only able to elect a member of their own choosing in one district. This is the kind of racial gerrymander that the Voting Rights Act was explicitly designed uh, to prevent. Um, and a lower court um, agreed. They wrote a 225-page ruling. And this panel included uh, two Trump appointees. Um, and, and they struck that map down. Uh, but when it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, they put the map back in place. It was a 5-4 decision, five conservatives, um, uh, John Roberts joining the uh, minority. And when John Roberts joins the uh, minority on a voting rights case, you know uh, uh, it, it has to be a pretty strong case because he has not been any any real friend of the uh, Voting Rights Act. But as soon as that case was decided in Alabama, it had a ripple effect across the South. Um, it had a ripple effect on the map in Louisiana, in South Carolina, in Georgia, where a, a federal judge looking at the uh, racial gerrymander there said, well, I do think that there's a problem with this map, but I don't think that the U.S. Supreme Court will agree with me. And so multiple seats across the South that would likely have been elected uh, black Democrats this year elected white Republicans instead. And mm -hmm. again, enough seats there that it could have flipped the balance of power in the U.S. House. Maya, when we're thinking about whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or state Supreme Courts, how much of a role are they playing right now in determining these maps? Well, I think as, as David pointed out, I mean, it's they are extremely important in sort of handing down the final rule. And what we saw in the 2013 case, I mean, it's made such a huge difference, particularly in the Deep South, around oversight of how these 
maps are drawn and what that means for political representation in Congress and for the political power of voters of color, particularly black voters in the Deep South. I mean, it it has a a serious trickle-down effect and the courts play a direct role almost as referees in how this is all written and drawn. Not that this is a game, because it absolutely isn't, and we're talking about maps and, and political representation, which has real implications for people's lives. But at the court level or at the at the, the level of the judiciary, they are sort of the ones who are who are arbiting exactly um, how much influence uh, the that the folks who are writing these maps will really have, and in turn, how much influence voters and constituents will have. Professor Austin, I wonder from your perspective what you think is at stake, both nationally as well as historically, if these maps continue to stay in place. Well, what's at stake is that uh, a significant number of people are going to lose their right to equal representation. And also what's at stake is that I think the ideology of judges and also of justices, um, not only on the Supreme Court, but also on federal courts, are going to uphold these types of maps. And that's going to really discourage people from even wanting to vote, because a lot of people are going to think, why should I even bother trying to vote if my vote is being diluted? And so you're going to have a generation of people, especially of younger people, who are going to really be disenchanted by the system. Maya, do you think this puts more focus than when we're thinking about maps on Senate races like Georgia, which, of course, is in the spotlight now with this runoff race? Well, I think it really puts more focus on state houses because those are the people who are drawing the maps. I mean, senators, you know, obviously have uh, a platform to be able to talk about this and weigh in. And Georgia remains sort of the center of, of politics right now because we have this runoff race. But I'm not entirely sure, you know, when people start to think about who they can hold accountable um, and what they can really do to make changes in their representation. The folks that I have heard from have said that they have re- they have pointed rather to state house leaders and, and said that if they could flip the balance of power in their state houses, that would give way to more equal representation or just at least uh, fairer map drawing. Maya King is a political reporter for The New York Times who covers the South. Uh, Sharon Austin is a political science professor at the University of Florida. Maya and Professor Austin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more of our conversation on redistricting and its influence on midterm elections in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation. Joining us now is Katie Fahey. She led the grassroots campaign to ban partisan gerrymandering in Michigan. The state now has an independent citizens redistricting commission. Katie, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Katie, Michigan's been held up as an example of a state that's doing it right when it comes to drawing independent maps. How does the independent redistricting commission in Michigan work? So we have it so that there's four Democrat voters, four Republican voters, and five independent or third-party voters who are on a commission. They can't be politicos, so they can't have you know previously been in office or be a registered lobbyist. And they actually have to go around our state and listen to the people of Michigan. And they have really specific criteria they have to follow, including looking at partisan fairness, like does how Michigan voters vote line up with how these maps will deliver representation, and looking and listening to communities about what they want representation to look like in Lansing. Um, And it's all done out in the open. People, hundreds of thousands of people came and commented. And ultimately, it had to be approved with a 
Democrats, Republicans, and independents all saying, yes, these are going to be our maps. And what's been the result? What have you heard from Democrats and Republicans and independents in Michigan since this election cycle? Do people feel like this was a fair process? Yeah, they really do. If you look at our election results, they are the closest that they have matched up to the actual seat allocation in decades, which is extremely exciting. And to, you know, Michigan is a really purple state. We have about 50% Democrats, about 50% Republicans. And we now have maps that will reflect that when the people vote that way. Uh, Michigan is a purple state, but David, Michigan Democrats took control of both the state house and the Senate for the first time in 40 years and, of course, also hold the governor's seat. I know I was in Michigan reporting just before the election, and I know there was a lot of energy around Proposal 3, which enshrined the right to an abortion in the state constitution. But, David, how much do you think this Democratic shift could also be attributed to this redistricting that happened? I think it is entirely attributable to the redistricting that happened. Michigan was one of the most extreme gerrymanders in the nation over the course of the last decade. Uh, Democratic uh, candidates for uh, Michigan State House actually won more votes statewide in 2012, 2014, 2016, 2018, and 2020. But Democrats were never able to take back the chamber. Um, so when we say that Michigan had not had you know Democrats in power in 40 years, it's not because Democrats had not won more votes. It's because in many cases, lines had been drawn that uh, disadvantaged Democrats and kept the other side in power. And there were all kinds of policy um, uh, ramifications from that. Uh, you can trace the uh, Flint water crisis. You know, lots of things that happened in Michigan uh, can be attributed in ways that the maps had really altered the nature of political power and who was heard in the state of Michigan. We just got a tweet from Jay Saunders. Districting is inherently disenfranchising for voters who are of the minority political preference in districts that are safely in the other party's hands, which is true in a large majority of districts. David, as we're listening to just that comment as well as what Katie's saying, I wonder what makes a redistricting process truly independent? That's a great question. Um, and I think the tweet is a really important one as well. Um, I think an independent redistricting process is one that produces a map that is responsive to the will of the people, on um, which a majority of voters feel as if they are being heard, that a majority of voters can change their elected representatives or the party in power if they feel um, like they are not serving them. Um, and an unfair process is one where one party has all of the seats at the table and they can lock themselves in power and entrench themselves and really sever that connection between the people and the ballot box. But I mean, I think your listener, I think Jay raises an important point as well. I mean, it's really important that we un-gerrymander the extremely gerrymandered states across the country, whether that's you know Michigan or Illinois or Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, any number of others. Um, but there's lots of Americans nationwide who live uh, in states where they simply cannot elect a member of their own choosing, um, who, who and that 
really is because of the way we elect the U.S. House in 435 single-member districts. I mean, I, I think if we really want to fix the problem of redistricting, we have to think about um, a bigger structural fix, uh, you know, something like larger multi-member uh, districts, the Fair Representation Act, a system that uh, works in a more proportional way to ensuring that we are allowing fair representation for Republicans in Massachusetts and, and Democrats in Utah and Oklahoma as well, because that's a really important part of our politics and it's missing right now in Washington. David, do you think, as you just to your point about the political will in Washington, there it does it see it appears that there is not a political will in Washington to have systemic change on this front. Is that accurate? I think you saw in the various voting rights bills that were brought forth um, in the last Congress, there were important provisions there that would have banned partisan gerrymandering nationwide, and that would have reinstated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court really eviscerated in the Shelby County decision, both of those would have made a real difference when it comes to the uh, partisan fairness um, and responsiveness and and equity and representation uh, that I think we did not see in too many states in this last process. Um, that bill ended up uh, 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 passing the, the House and not making it past the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. Um, I, now, if you've got you know Democrats and Republicans uh, sharing one of those chambers, it is hard to see where the political compromise comes from uh, in order to resuscitate that bill. But we need it more than ever. Dave just asked us on Twitter, could a future Congress mandate nonpartisan districting commissions? Katie, what do you think? They certainly could, at least for the congressional level. Um, and I wish that would happen. Uh, unfortunately, many states don't have the ballot initiative process like we did in Michigan, where in Michigan, citizens could come together, write constitutional language, gather a bunch of signatures, and directly vote on amending our constitution ourselves. We could completely bypass our legislature to say we want an independent commission. But in the majority of states, you have to have the legislators who are in power actively deciding to give themselves less power if they were to give the redistricting process over to an independent commission. The thing I think all representatives should remember, though, is that this is something that voters overwhelmingly want. Um, and we do want to be able to hold our elected officials accountable, even when Again, they might be from the party we like or that we don't like. None of us want a fair or a or an unfair or corrupt uh, political process, and I think we keep seeing that more and more. And people want to be able to hold folks accountable. So I hope that they will actually do something. Kitty, if people listening in other states want to do what you did, perhaps even go this route of a ballot initiative, what's your recommendation for how they should start um, establishing an independent commission? 
Well, you can definitely come to thepeople.org. We see people from all 50 states who really want more accountability, whether it's around redistricting or, or other ways like getting money out of politics. But I think the biggest thing to remember is that this isn't a single party issue. Maybe you're motivated because the party you want isn't in charge or something like that. But there really are a lot of voters who just want a fair system they can trust. And so start with asking your friends and neighbors. I mean, make your own Facebook post to change the world. Figure out who are the other folks who really do care about fairness, representation, getting accountability, and making sure that their politicians, while they are in office, are afraid of being unelected. Because I think that's the most exciting thing in Michigan right now is maybe the Democrats won this time, but the Republicans can win the next election cycle just as easily. It really will be up to who is delivering the results for people in Michigan. So people in other states... First of all, you got a lot of other people even outside of your state who want to help, but find those other folks who also care just like you and start talking to your neighbors about what does this mean? What does it look like? And show your legislature that this really is an important issue. Katie, do you feel like the energy shifted in Michigan for this election cycle because of redistricting? How would you describe? I would say I was in West Michigan and I found people were very engaged on all sides of the issue. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I I think that being able to have hope that maybe if you have been in a place where you haven't felt represented for the last 40 years, that for the first time you might be able to actually do that. Um, I think that was extremely energizing, as well as if you have been used to being in charge, needing to mobilize your voters and needing to make sure you're turning out to still get the election results you want. I definitely saw that across the way. The thing that I only saw a little bit of change for that I'm really excited in future elections that hopefully that more the politicals and the political strategists take note of is in the primaries in our state, some really extreme candidates still were the winners. But now without redistricting, extreme candidates are actually less likely to win. And you saw that on both the Democrat and Republican side, you had some kind of more extreme candidates making it through the primary. And then in the general, they didn't end up winning. And I hope that that goes to change how we're not only performing and thinking about how do you run candidates, how do you really make sure somebody is representing all of the voters of a district in the general, but including in the primaries. And I bet you're looking forward to Thanksgiving next week, huh? I am. I'm so excited. We still vote differently, but we really have come together over realizing that we have a lot more in common, including wanting a democracy that actually we can all be proud of. That's Katie Fahey. She led a successful grassroots campaign to ban partisan gerrymandering in Michigan. I also want to thank David Daly, author of Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. He's also a senior fellow at the nonprofit organization Fair Vote. David, Katie, thank you for joining me. The show is part of 1A's Remaking America project, looking at how democracy is and is not working for everyone. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producers were Anna Casey and Georgelina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios, in for Jen White. This is 1A.